Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment, we're talking to Keaton Ross, who covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. In his latest story, he examines issues facing Oklahoma's orphan counties, including lower voter turnout and civic engagement. So, Keaton, let's start with what, what's an orphan county? Yeah, so I actually didn't know this term before I started reporting this story, but an orphan county is a county that is uh, usually on the border of a state or kind of on the not not towards the middle, and they're they're tucked on to a a media market in another state. Uh, so the news that they're getting is, you know, if you're in an election cycle, a lot of the news that they're getting, at least TV news, is uh, from out of state. So they're getting information on elections that aren't aren't relevant to them. Um, and so so we see that in different parts of Oklahoma. How many of those counties do we have statewide? Um, so there there are 24 that either are partial in a partially out of state media market or uh, primarily out of state media market. Um, it's kind of interesting because you have markets like Lawton, Wichita Falls there, you know, there is a TV station in Lawton, but they also get some stuff from Wichita Falls. And then on the other end, you have places like uh, McCurtain County in, in the far southeast corner that get their news from Shreveport, Louisiana. And they're the only Oklahoma market in uh, the Shreveport TV market. So um, not not much, you know, Oklahoma news being covered from from them. The 24 counties, that's nearly a third of uh, the counties in the state that are that are getting some or all of their information from another state. Yeah, it's it's a pretty significant percentage. So what was voter turnout like in those areas compared to, say, Oklahoma City and Tulsa? Uh, so based on all the data I got from all 77 counties, it was uh, generally lower. Um, there were just two counties uh that, that fit the mold of an orphan county, both of them in the panhandle that had voter turnout uh, above the statewide average of 50.8%. The other 22 were all, all below that number. Um, and, and 13 of the 15 counties with the lowest voter turnout were uh, the so-called orphan counties. Now, you talked to two experts who have studied this. Did they offer any kind of explanation for why voter turnout tends to be lower in orphan counties? So it's it's pretty simple. You know, if you know less, you're you're less likely to be civically engaged um, if you're not getting it on TV. If it's not kind of coming to you more naturally, uh, you know, a lot of times you're just not that that up to speed on what's going on. Of course, you know, also geographically, you know, distant from uh, Oklahoma City. So you may not feel like, you know, what's going on there is super relevant to you. Um, so it's, you know, pretty consistent studies and stuff that if you, you know, if it's, if you don't have as much of this information easily accessible, uh, you might, you might be less likely to vote. Now, you also talked to some uh, state lawmakers who represent those Orphan County residents. Uh, how do their constituents receive their state government news? So several years ago, they might get, you know, the Tulsa world or the Oklahoman. Of course, those days are are in the past. The circulation doesn't go out that far in the state. So most of the time, you know, they're relying on 
you know, internet, social media, which of, of course in, in rural parts of the state can uh, be spotty or slower, um, which can be a hurdle to overcome. That's where, you know, if you, if you want to get information out there, uh, a lot of times you're having to rely on um, the internet. So do residents have any say in what like television stations they get? So the, the FCC at the federal level uses data from the Nielsen company, um, the TV analytics firm, uh, to, to set these TV markets. Um, so, you know, on an individual, you know, it's a lot of this data that they're getting. It's not like, you know, people go and vote on it, of course. Um, we have seen some cases where uh, people have been able to change that, but it, it's pretty difficult. Well, as you just suggested, uh, have there been any groups of residents that have petitioned the FCC to change their media market placement? And, and how does that affect what they actually see? Yeah. So uh, in my research, there were there have been a couple of places that uh, have been able to do it. One in southwest Colorado, uh, where they were getting news from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they wanted news from uh, Denver or Colorado Springs. Uh they were able to to petition, and the other case was uh, some counties in Northwest Georgia that were getting news from South Carolina when they wanted it from Atlanta. Uh, they they were able to get through that process, but it's just it's pretty cumbersome, as you would imagine, going through kind of the bureaucracy of the FCC as well as you have to get the sign off from the TV companies, being sure that they have the the signals and capability to to get out further, uh, which might be less of a concern now than maybe 10 or 20 years ago. Um, but it's still something you have to figure out kind of on the bureaucratic level and the, the technology side, which can be uh, difficult, of course. Is there any likelihood of seeing changes uh, in Oklahoma in those 24 counties anytime soon? Uh, it doesn't appear very likely. Uh, the one of the state representatives I talked to from Southeast Oklahoma said, you know, there have been conversations and efforts looking into it, and it just doesn't appear to be going anywhere in the near future. Um, looks like the best bet of getting, you know, better information access to some of these folks uh, is likely the the rural broadband plan and increasing access and internet speeds uh, outside of urban areas. I think so. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. Um, you can read uh, Keaton's story about orphan counties and all his other investigative work on democracy on our website, OklahomaWatch.org, where you can also subscribe to his weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. We're talking to uh, Whitney Bryan, who... Uh, is suing the city of Tulsa along with Oklahoma Watch. Uh, that lawsuit was filed on Tuesday. Uh, she's seeking details about the violent arrest of a woman who was in the throes of a mental health crisis and uh, ran into some hurdles. Whitney, remind us about the case that prompted this lawsuit. Tell us what happened to LaDonna Paris. Well, LaDonna Paris is in her 70s. Uh, she has bipolar disorder. And last October, so last fall, she had a manic episode, uh, became confused, disoriented, and she locked herself in the bathroom of a Habitat for Humanity store in Tulsa. She was there for several hours and eventually an employee called the store, uh, excuse me, called police to help them, you know, get her out. And after police arrived, that's really when things kind of took a turn. Officer Ronnie Karosha 
called Paris names and was laughing at her and taunting her, making jokes about her mental illness outside the bathroom door while Paris was locked inside, um, screaming that she was afraid police were going to kill her. Um, she's clearly terrified in some of the video footage that I've seen. And um, Karosha even ends up firing her taser outside of the door, um, kind of laughing about scaring Paris with that. Eventually, all of this leads to police kicking in the door and tackling Paris to the ground and arresting her. And uh, just for clarity, when we're saying last fall, last October, we mean October 2021, correct? Yes, that's correct. And uh, then this spring of 2022, you wrote a story about that. Is that right? That's right. Uh, some video footage was released by Paris's son, and that caused a lot of blowback uh, to the Tulsa Police Department. They ended up releasing even more video footage of the situation. And so I looked into whether those officers violated any of Tulsa police policies or procedures. Uh, we have a story about that on our website. And when you uh, put in the records request to the police department, what did you ask for? Yeah, so when I reported that story, I requested police records, which is pretty standard procedure with most stories that involve police uh, incidents of any kind. Uh, and anytime I write about arrests or interactions with police, I'll typically request uh, audio of the 911 call, uh, the 911 call log. So that gives us kind of a, a date, time, place um, for the incident. And then I also requested the incident report and um, the video footage, which in this case was already made public. And did the uh, Tulsa Police Department provide any of those records? So, yes, they did provide that that video camera footage uh, from the body cams from the officers. And they also provided what they call a, a CAD log of the 911 call. So, again, that's basically just a location, a time that the call came in, uh, really basic and limited information about the 911 call to dispatch. But they did refuse to give me the audio of that call um, to the emergency line and also the incident report, which I was told couldn't be released because there's an internal investigation into the officer's actions. Uh, and uh, the Open Records Act addresses that specific topic, doesn't it? It does, absolutely. In fact, it says that incident reports, uh, which include things like a summary of the incident, the officer's names, date, time, place, uh, all of that is public record. And it even says that you cannot withhold a public record uh, just because of an investigation. It's pretty clear on that point. Now, in the lawsuit, we allege that employees of the police department violated the Open Records Act by withholding those records. And uh, in pursuit of those records, uh, you also learned that the department doesn't really have a designated employee uh, responsible for responding to requests for public information. Uh, and that's also a violation of state law, right? That's right. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? The, the law says uh, that the, uh, what's the term, not the keeper of the records, but the custodian. Custodian's the word I'm looking for, right? So the custodian of records is supposed to do what? 
So the custodian of records has to be available during, you know, kind of quote unquote business hours. So for most places, you know, that's like a nine to five, eight to five kind of scenario. Um, And they have to be available to provide public information, things that the law requires that they they give to the public when requested. So the incident report, for instance, is a good example of that. There has to be someone who's who's there, who's available when I call or when you call, when anyone from the public calls and says, I want that public record to deliver that public record. And in this case, I was bounced around to five or six different people uh, told I had to call the, the chief's office to get records released and the chief's office never responded. And um, do you recall what the Open Records Act says about uh, how quickly a public entity is supposed to respond to that kind of request? If I recall, it's something to the effect of a reasonable amount of time. And so in the case of an incident report, you know, it's pretty reasonable to expect those reports to be turned around fairly quickly. In fact, that's typically my experience getting a police report from many different departments around the state. Those often can be pulled very quickly by the department and emailed or even, you know, printed off and I can go pick that up. It usually happens within a day or two days at the most. Well, and uh, my recollection is that when Drew Edmondson was uh, the attorney general, he wrote an opinion uh, trying to define reasonable time and, uh, Uh, said something to the effect that a reasonable amount of time was the amount of time it took you to walk over to the file cabinet and pull it out. So, um, and we're now on what, six or eight months you've been uh, waiting for these? Yes, I requested these records at the beginning of April. So we are well beyond, I think, what most people would consider a reasonable amount of time to pull an incident report. Now, why are those records important? Why does the public care? Well, these, as I said, are public records, first and foremost. So while this kind of information is really important for for my job, for my day-to-day reporting, um, this information, everyone has the right to it. Uh, The Tulsa Police Department is funded by taxpayer money, which means you, the public, are paying for these services, and you have a right to this information about what kind of work is being done and how that work is happening. So reports like these are vital to holding police and other public agencies and employees accountable to, um, you know, the duties that you're, you, the taxpayer, are um, having them do. Now, what do you hope to accomplish with the lawsuit? Well, obviously, I'm hoping the court will force the department to release um, those records that I don't yet have the audio of that 911 call and that incident report, especially. Um, But beyond that, I also hope this will cause the department to create a better system for processing and fulfilling those public records. You know, that um, harkens back to the custodian that we talked about, actually having someone who is available to provide um, and has access to these public records. And and the authority to produce them. That's right. And in a reasonable amount of time. So, you know, we're obviously hoping for the records, but we're also hoping that this will make the process easier for, for us and for the public in the future. All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. You can read uh, Whitney's story about the lawsuit Oklahoma Watch has filed against uh, the city of Tulsa and the police department on our website, oklahomawatch.org, where you can also read all of uh, Whitney's other investigative work. In this segment, we're talking to Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch. 
She's been reporting a story about a school board that's facing criminal charges for an alleged violation of the Open Meetings Act. Now, Jennifer, what have you learned? Well, I found that four board members in Billings School District have now been charged, um, arrested and charged with misdemeanors for violating the Open Meetings Act. And for those who might not know, where is Billings? It is um, west of I-35 near Tonkawa. And what exactly are the board members accused of doing? So the allegations detailed in the court records say that these board members met uh, in secret meetings uh, in groups of three or four uh, on different occasions um, to conduct business for the school district, such as um, choosing a new superintendent, hiring a new superintendent. um, And they had been warned by attorneys multiple times that they um, couldn't do that. And uh, they can't do it because it's against the law, right? That's right. Um, Now, maybe you can explain a little bit if, um, you know, these board members get together for breakfast, a small place like Billings, um, that would be pretty common. Is that against the law? No, they would have to discuss school business, right? That's that's the whole thing. The, the business of the school district, because it's their public officials and it's a public school district, has to be conducted in a public meeting or in public. All right. Well, it, journalists are keenly aware of the Open Meetings Act because it affects our day-to-day work. But uh, the law is in place because everybody, not just journalists, has a right to know how their elected officials are conducting public business, right? That's right. I mean, we uh, as journalists go to a lot of of public meetings um, kind of to be the public's eye, right? And write about it on behalf of folks who maybe couldn't go, um, but who want to know what happened. But really, the law is in place for everybody. So the the Open Meetings and Open Records Act, um, they don't create special privileges for journalists or anything, right? The same law applies to everybody, journalists, non-journalists, anybody at all. That's right. Uh, What kind of information do we get from those public meetings? I mean, lots of information that the public needs to know, mostly um, financial stuff, like what they're spending their money on, um, who they're hiring and firing uh, is really important, uh, lawsuits, things like that. I think, you know, maybe one that's been in the news a lot uh, this year that's been discussed at a lot of board meetings or the uh, bathroom and gender issues that have been such a hot topic, right? I mean, that's something we've seen discussed in a lot of school board meetings around the state. Absolutely, because those laws required the districts to create their own policies, and then those policies are hammered out in public meetings. Now, these four board members uh, in Billings were actually arrested and charged with misdemeanors. That's kind of unusual, isn't it? It is. Um, what's what's the more typical way of uh, handling that? Well, I, I, I knew it was unusual and wanted to find out just kind of how rare uh, this was. Um, I did find some recent instances where judges had um, enforced the Open Meeting Act, but those were through civil cases. It's the arrest part that is much more rare. Um, Were you able to find uh, any cases in recent history where a school board member has been arrested for violating the act? Not in recent history. The most um, recent one was 1991 that we could find. And I searched uh, through my my own news archives and also pulled three different experts on open meetings, open records, uh, legal experts um, to try to find more of these cases. 
And so for those who might not know, uh, maybe worth explaining, the law creates both a civil remedy, right? Anybody, any member of the public can sue a government agency uh, in, in case of a violation of the Open Meetings or Open Records Act. But it also creates a crime, right? There's a criminal statute uh, uh, that's a misdemeanor if you violate either one of those acts. But uh, it is infrequently enforced because it requires another public official, the district attorney in that county, to file charges and pursue it. And um, I think, and uh, certainly in my experience, maybe yours as well, district attorneys are reluctant to arrest uh, fellow public officials and charge them uh, with, with misdemeanors uh, over something that could be handled civilly. Absolutely. And I did find a few instances where it had been in the news that um, school board members were accused of violating the Open Meetings Act, but the district attorney chose not to press charges. All right. Well, Jennifer, thanks so much for pursuing the story. Uh, you can read all of Jennifer's coverage about the arrests and billings on our website, OklahomaWatch.org, where you can also subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. This is Oklahoma Watch Executive Director Ted Struley. During the months of November and December, Oklahoma Watch is eligible for a matching grant from the Miami Foundation under their Newsmatch program. The Miami Foundation matches dollar for dollar every single donation given to a nonprofit news organization like ours that's participating in the program. That means that if you donate $5 a month, we get a match for $60. They match the entire year. If you can offer $10 a month, they'll match the whole year's worth $120. For $50 a month, they'll match $300. Every nickel you give is matched by the Miami Foundation as long as we receive it between November 1st and December 31st. And as a bonus, if you happen to be a brand new donor, we get an additional grant if we reach 100 new donors in the last two months of the year. If you enjoy the work we do at Oklahoma Watch, if you appreciate our investigative reporting, our holding government officials accountable, take just a moment, please, and visit us at oklahomawatch.org, find our support page, and pledge $5 a month, $10 a month, $50 a month, whatever you're comfortable doing. Every dollar of that will be matched. And if you're a new donor, we get a bonus on top of that. We're nonprofit. We don't sell ads. This is what keeps us going and what keeps our newsroom uh, keeping the public's business public. Thanks again.